Good morning to you all today. You just got to wait for it, right? You just got to wait for it. It'll come. It'll come. It is a good morning, even though it snowed outside. How many of you, no, I was going to say, how many of you excited about the snow? How many of you give an, oh, yay, snow? And now how many is going to give me an, oh, me? Yeah, oh, my. Oh, my. Well, here we are in week seven. Can you believe it? Week seven. Usually we're like done at week four of a series, right? Week four, week five, we're done. But we're on week seven, and we are halfway through. Yes, we have made it halfway through this series that we've been doing on the creed. <clears throat> Excuse me. I gotta get. I didn't grab any water, and now I'm gonna. I'm gonna turn my mic off because I'm gonna gonna cough. Here we go. All right, I'm back. You with me? All right. So earlier this week, um, I was thinking, can we pass on this one? Can we just skip this particular part of the Apostles' Creed? Um, because, you know, there's, there's parts of the Apostles' Creed that I don't really like. And there's parts of the Bible that I'm kind of like the same way about. I'm like, I'm a little bit like Thomas Jefferson. You guys know about Thomas Jefferson? He's that one guy that was, you know, one of the founders of the United States, one of the founding fathers. And uh, he had this thing where he didn't like parts of the Bible. In fact, he didn't think any of the miracles of the Bible had ever happened. He thought they were just kind of made up because you couldn't explain it by science. So what he did is he took another King James Bible. He opened it up and he started in Genesis and he took out, you know, whatever the 1700s equivalent of a Zatko knife was. And he started cutting out sections of the Bible that he said didn't happen. And then he compiled it all and it's called the Jefferson Bible. And it's just a Bible that's missing all the miracles. And so I, I kind of wanted to do that with the Apostles' Creed. I'm like, let's just skip some of the Apostles' Creed this week, especially this one here where we have to deal with from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I mean, this is not fair. Frankly, because Taylor, a couple weeks ago, he got the virgin birth, right? Now, virgin birth is weird, but that's got babies in it, right? And babies are always cute. And then Heidi, she gets the resurrection, right? So that's like crazy, but it's hopeful. But I get judgment. It's just not fair. <clears throat> Speaking of Heidi, didn't she do a great job last week? I don't, I don't say that to, to bring applause to Heidi. Um, I say that to bring applause to Jesus. Because really, we were talking about this morning in prayer that one of the things that Christians get mixed up all the time is we think it's about us. You know, we think prayer is about us, like God meet my needs and take care of these things. And we think the sermons, you know, oh, you're such a great pastor, you're such a great speaker. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And Heidi showed up last week. She was here on stage, and she showed her heart, shared her heart, and guess what happened? Jesus showed up too. Isn't that awesome that God is so faithful that no matter what goes on up here or even what's going on up here or in our emotions, Jesus is faithful to show up. And, and I'm so I'm really excited because that means this morning if I'm willing to show up, that he's going to show up too, and uh, I really believe that he is. So, back to judgment. Speaking of, yeah, speaking of giving sermons and judgment. Um, today we're going to explore the Christian belief that uh, right out of the gate we're going to face some really big challenges. You know, the first one is this, the words. Um, it says, okay, English lesson here. It says, shall and will, from whence he shall come to judge the living and dead. Shall and will are two words in English, if you're aware of, are future tense words, right? It shall happen. It will happen. We've turned a corner in, in the Apostles' Creed. Up to this point, everything are things that have happened. Um, everything that we believe has happened. And there is some biblical evidence for these things, and there is some physical evidence for these things. The, the stories of Jesus are all 
historically um, vettable. You can look at historical documents outside of the Bible to say, hey, look, Jesus existed. Jesus lived. Jesus made a big stir in the Palestine region around the first century. Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Jesus did somehow come back to life because everybody's freaking out about it, and it's all recorded. But this, we turn to the future. This we look into the future, and it seems crazy to me that as Christians, we stake our faith on something that will happen. Not on something that has happened, but on something that will happen. I mean, we don't talk very solidly as people, as human beings, about the future, right? We don't think in those terms. I mean, we, we say things like, you know, we hedge our bets, like the markets might rise. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put some of my some of my money and in, in invest in stocks in the hopes that they might rise. I might get a promotion. The Cougs might possibly beat the Huskies. <clears throat> it could happen. Yet with this statement, we're being like really super solid. We were like, it will rain in Seattle. I mean, we all know this is going to happen, right? We know that the sun will rise every day as long as the earth keeps spinning. And then when that happens, when the earth stops spinning, we all float off of it. So we know that the sun will rise and we are being just as solid about this statement as to say that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. This will happen. And I think this is a great place to point us back to our first sermon in the series. And the title of our series, really, which is Believe. That this is a statement of belief. And believing and knowing are two different things. We know with our mind, but we believe with our heart. We make a leap of faith. Now, every worldview, every um, thought in this planet really takes a leap of faith. Whether you believe that there is no God or you believe there is a God, you've got to make a leap of faith because you've got no evidence like solid, physical, like I can set God here or I can show that there is no God. I can't do that for either of those things. And so we have to make a leap of faith. And that's what we're saying this morning. As Christians, we make a leap of faith that this is going to happen because Jesus, who was a real person, said that it was going to happen. We're going to explore that a little more. So that's the first problem we are going to have, uh, run across. The second one is this, is it's that word judgment. Now, I don't know everybody's story in this room, uh, but if you've ever stood in front of a judge for any reason, I don't imagine that you look back on that moment as one of the best moments of your life, right? Have you ever stood before a judge and thought, this is so much fun. I'm, I'm like, I got to do this all the time. Like every day I need to do this because this is so amazing, a lawyer might. Yes, I don't, we don't have, we have any lawyers today, I don't know. But it, it, we just, in fact, our whole culture looks at this idea of judgment and says, what? Don't judge me, right? Look at this. This is a simple Google search of this. Don't judge me. You can find people that are saying, like, don't judge my mini pig, and I won't judge your kids. Uh, before you judge me, make sure you're perfect, right? Uh, my chicken addiction. I don't even know, right? But don't judge me. Chicken addiction, that's kind of weird. And this one, I think they just couldn't work the spell checker right because it says, don't judge me, you judgmental judger. I would have said, like, don't judge me, you judgy judgmental judger of people. Um, don't judge me, I love food and something going on with this cat here. He ate his way through a loaf of bread. Don't judge me. We say it all the time. It's like one of the first things that Heidi and I started hearing from young adults. Like, They're like, you're eating second dessert. And they look at you with this look on their face, like, don't judge me. What are you doing that you feel like I'm going to judge you? It's, it's crazy. <clears throat> no matter what it is, whether it's personal or whether it's from an authority figure, whether it's a critique or whether it's an actual judgment call, 
none of us, none of us get excited about being judged. Therefore, I would like to skip this subject and just move on. Shall we? Shall we just go on to the next one? I've got, yeah, I've got several pages of notes left, so you don't say yes, please. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about judgment, actually, and I think it has some things to say that you may not think it has to say. And so I want to take a look at it. Matthew chapter 25. This is toward the end of Jesus' life. It's just before um, Matthew records the crucifixion. And we're going to be reading from verses 31 um, and then through 46, but I'm going to skip a section of it because it's repetitive and we don't have a lot of time to go over this. Um, This is a section of Scripture where Jesus is teaching his disciples the things that, again, will happen, the things that are to come. Um, He is talking about uh, the end times, the end of the world, and how this whole thing is going to wrap up. Things that will happen. And let me tell you, Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, there's some really interesting reading in there. And I wanted to like do this whole treatise on it, but then I realized like we could be here till Thursday if I did that. So I encourage you to go home and read it. Um, and this, this section of the scripture is called, they, they've given it a little title, The Final Judgment. And this is actually literally a legal term that we still use today. If you're not a lawyer, you might not know this, or a judge, and you might not know this. But the final judgment is the moment in which all the cases have been presented, all the arguments have been made, all the mitigating circumstances have been made known, everything that can be said or should be said or needs to be said, every shred of evidence has been presented. The judge has made a judgment, guilty, not guilty, and then we are now waiting for the sentence. That's what this moment is. It's this moment where all of humanity's case has been presented before God, and now we're just waiting on the final sentencing. And that's what's happening in this passage. So the final judgment is what we're looking at here. So let's take a look at this, starting in verse 31. I'm going to read it and then kind of talk about it as we go, right? So verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit down on his glorious throne. So let's stop right there for just a second and pause. Pause. Let's clear up something real quick here. This is talking about judgment and who the judge is. And this is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. And he uses this title. It's, it's really weird, I admit, because it, he's talking about himself in the third person. Did you guys catch that? When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, I'm like, wait a minute. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus is the Son of Man. Why, why are you talking about yourself in the third person? I worked with a guy once who did that. His name was Pat. And uh, we would cut down trees together. And we had this one time, I remember, I was like, had this huge tree, and he wanted me to fall it. And he's like, I'm getting it lined up and getting all ready to go. And I'm looking at it. And it's like my first really big tree that I'm cutting down. And he comes over and kneels next to me, smoking a cigarette. And he says, now you know what Pat would do here. And I'm like, who's Pat? That's what I turned around and said to him. I'm like, who's Pat? Is it a Patricia or a Patty or Patrick? Who is this other Pat? Why are you saying this? Jesus is doing the same thing. It's weird. I don't know why he does it. So he says that he is the Son of Man. And as saying that he is the Son of Man, he's not identifying as God. He's identifying as you and me. He's saying, this judge that is going to come and sit on the throne is one of you. He's walked your road. He knows your experience. He knows the struggle with sin is real. He knows that pain and brokenness is real. He knows what's going on. So this judge who is sitting on this glorious throne is a man. But he doesn't stop there. You catch the second half of that. He says, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on a glorious throne. All of this stuff here is divine. Like Only God comes with angels. Only God gets to sit on the judgment seat. This is looking back into the Old Testament and talking about this glorious judgment throne that 
God the Father only sits on. So Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, who is a man, is going to come with his angels, who is also God, and he is going to sit on the throne. You've got a really unique judge here. This is Jesus, who is both God and man, both man and divine. It's this picture that is brought into the creed over and over again. He's born of a woman, the Virgin Mary, right? But he is conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he is both human and divine. He suffers like every human. He dies. He is buried like every human. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But yet, he raises again, displaying power over death and the grave that only belongs to God. So Jesus, right out of the gate here, is saying, Look, I am both man, I am both God, and I am sitting on this judgment throne of God, and that's who your judge is. This is the one who gets to judge you. In verse 32, he says, Before him will gather all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And it's flipped if it's you. So the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now, I don't know about you, but sheep are not really my thing. I know there are like maybe four people in this room that they absolutely love sheep. If you are a sheep person, besides Janet and Janice, raise your hand. Sheep people. Oh, wow. Okay, there's one. Yeah, and you're just doing it just to, to, to support them. Yeah, thanks. He's, you're trying to get a vote. If you don't know, he... keep going. If you don't know, yeah. Anyway, I'm not really a sheep person i got to find myself in the notes. Here we go. Um, Jan and Janice are actual shepherds, and I will probably step on the shepherd's feet here shortly. Um, but for the rest of us, sheep really belong to the realm of dreams, right? It's that moment where we're lying in bed and we're counting those little fluffy suckers going over the fence, you know. Like, There's a sheep. There's a sheep. This is what I know about sheep, you know. And I also know that their babies taste really good. That's all I'm saying. So, you know, serious, man, some roasted potatoes and one of those little things. It's like, this is, this is living. This is my knowledge of sheep and goats, right? This is, this is what I actually I have some other knowledge about goats. I'll tell you about in a second. But so when I'm reading this scripture, I'm saying to myself, look, he's using sheep and goats. I don't know what that means. He's separated them apart from one another. I don't even know why. I don't understand why goats get punished and sheep don't. I don't know why he picks one over the other. And like, you know, I'm asking this big question, like, which one of these guys am I? You know, am I a sheep or am I a goat? And how do I know? You know, what? So like any good pastor, I went to the source of all knowledge, if not wisdom, to Google. And I took a look to find, you know, what I could find about sheep and goats. Because when Jesus said this, the guys that were standing with him are going, oh, yeah, yeah, I get this. I understand why you're saying sheep and goats. But for me, it's like dinner, you know, and I don't want to eat goat. I've experienced that smell before. So here's what I found out. First of all, I found out that sheep and goats are actually different. Even though they're of the same family, they are actually different. And for the most part, it's easy to tell, except in some parts of the world where certain qualities of these two animals haven't been bred in or bred out of them. In fact, in first century Palestine, sheep and goats looked surprisingly similar, and they would be kept together out in a field And if you didn't know what you were doing, like I wouldn't know what I was doing, and you were out looking at your flock, you would see largely the same thing. Because they all look like this. And these are goats. These are not sheep. Now, if you're Jan and Janice, you're like, of course they're goats. I mean, look at their ears. or They've got horns. Sheep don't even have horns. You know, their tail, it's totally different. 
uh, yeah, whatever. You know, they're fluffy, they're woolly, they just look, they, they look identical. So what we see here is this picture of Jesus saying, I am the, I am the good shepherd. You guys remember this word before in the, old, the New Testament. Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The sheep hear my voice. The sheep follow my voice. They know me. And he walks in among the sheep and the goats, which every shepherd would do. And he's got his staff and he is separating them off because the goats have to go into the barn for the night because they can't stay out in the cold. So he sends them off to the barn for the night and then the sheep he leaves and he leads them into green pastures. They are different and yet look very same, very, very similar, which kind of says something to me about how we might look upon sheep and goats. We might look upon the crowd right now and many of us just can't tell who's who. We can't tell what's going on in each other's hearts. But Jesus does, and he can, and he's a good, competent shepherd and capable of judging, of choosing which is which and separating them. The second thing I learned about sheep and goats is this, is that sheep and goats have distinctly different characters, and I learned this firsthand. See, first of all, sheep, they prefer to be together. They're timid. They, they need protection from a leader. Uh, so if one of them strays, that one becomes very, very agitated, very stressed out, and the shepherd has to go after them. There's this beautiful picture Jesus gives us of saying, look, I got a hundred sheep and one of them's wandered off. They're freaking out someplace. They're in danger. The, the wolves are going to come get them. I'm going after that one and leaving the others. And I'm going to go find the one. Goats, on the other hand, are completely the opposite. If a goat strays, it's just being a goat. They're curious and inquisitive at best. And at worst, they're stubborn and destructive. Goats are prone to wander off. They're prone to butt things with their heads, like other animals, other goats, other people. And they use their horns, their browsers. They like to eat around uh, the ground. Not like browsing the internet, uh, young adults. It's not, they're not that kind of, you can't, just goat browsing. Anytime I can put a goat sound into a sermon, you guys are with me, right? So I like put that right in there. Um, So they're not that kind of browsers. They're like food browsers, which means they'll taste anything. Like, oh, look, a car tire, ah, you know. Oh, look, your leg, ah, you know. And they're like, they'll chew the fence. In fact, one person who raises goats said this about them. They said, if your fence isn't watertight, it won't hold a goat. Because they'll just eat it and then just wander right through it. Goats are stubborn. I even saw a picture of a goat that was, they're bullies, okay, they're bullies. I saw a goat standing on top of a sheep. You're like, I have some personal experience with goats. When I was about five years old, my parents were working to make ends meet. They were working in some stables. And there was a billy goat who I adored. I thought it was the most wonderful thing I'd ever seen in the world. And it was walking around and it's eating things. And, you know, and I'm like, here, do you want my lunch? And it's like ate my lunch. And then when I didn't have any more lunch, guess what it decided? I have two options. One, I could taste you. Or two, I can butt you with my head. So he butted me with his head, launched me across the room. And it was in that moment that I found out that goats can actually fly because I have a mama bear mom who came running across and grabbed the goat by the horns and flung him. And it's like, woo, bah. So Jesus uses this image of sheep and goats to talk about the qualities of the people being judged. He's saying there's going to be people at the end that are being gathered from all over the world, this great big massive herd of people. And if the people in this, they're looking around, they're like, you guys all look just like me. Who's getting in and who's not? Who's going to be allowed into heaven and who is not? And this competent shepherd judge is going to walk amongst us and he's going to look and he's going to know the character. He's going to know the response. He's going to know the hearts of, the, of this flock and be able to judge 
the sheep from the goats, and he's going to separate them. Jesus uses the image of sheep and goats to talk about those qualities that he's using to judge people. And this is kind of what he's saying. It's not just that they are genetically different, but it's their character. It's how they live toward one another. It's how they treat one another. And it's how they treat the message that was to come and the messenger that came to them. It says this, Then the king... Now here's this verse 34. This is a third image we have of Jesus. First we have... We have the Son of Man, Son of God, so divine and human. Second one was the shepherd. Now, now this judge is the king, right? It's his third image. Man, God, shepherd, now king. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. So the sheep are looking back at the shepherd and said, What? What? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? I'm just a sheep. I didn't see this. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers... You did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So let's just pause right there for a second. This is like the worst conception of hell, actually, in the New Testament. It's like the worst imagine. This is like where Dante starts to get his ideas of hell and the seven levels and fire and flames and torment for, for all eternity. And I want you to notice something about this. We need to get this very, very straight. God did not prepare hell for us. It was not his intent when he set out to create it. It says right here, depart from me into eternal fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. The devil is the, the one who came into time and history and brought brokenness and sin. Okay, he's the one that set it all into motion. He chose to rebel against God, we learn in the Old Testament. He comes and he tempts Adam and Eve. And the story begins where we turn our heart away from God to try to be God ourselves. And he is the one that introduced that into humanity. And so God created this place for him to be forever and a day and in this place of hell. He didn't create it for you and me. It's not his desire that he would ever send any, anyone there. So now Jesus repeats himself following this up. He uses the same, you know, whatever you did unto the least of these, you did unto me. And he says to those he is sending to hell with, with Satan, because you didn't do these things. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't drink, give me drink when I was thirsty. You didn't visit me in prison. You didn't visit me when I was sick. And they say the same thing. When did we do any of this or not do any of this? He says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it to me. So first we see the sheep and the goats are judged by their nature and their character as sheep and goats. And then they're judged. In this judgment scene, we are given what that evidence is, what the criteria literally is that they are being judged on. And it's not just the location of their tail or their ears or horns, because he can tell by how they responded to two things. He can tell by how they responded to the message of Jesus and to the messengers that brought it. See, for the people that Matthew was writing this to, these stories would have 
uh, really hit home for them. Because they're reading it many years after Jesus has resurrected and gone into heaven. Matthew is one of Jesus' first followers. He's the tax collector, right? He was hated by everybody, but Jesus accepted him. And Jesus invited him to follow him. And then Jesus transformed him from a sinful, broken man to a leader in the first church. And he has got these disciples around him, these new disciples, these new people that have decided to follow Jesus. And they're living this life. But here's what's going on. Because they are fighting against the Roman cult system. In other words, so Rome said, yes, you have to bow down to Caesar as a god. And they said, no, we bow down only to Jesus. And we have the Jews who said that there is only one God. He is God the Father. And you're saying that Jesus is God. He's this third part of God, but he is not. That's, that's heresy. The Messiah hasn't come. So both of these groups, the Romans and the Jews, are persecuting the Christians. And the Christians are finding themselves one day coming home, and their door is boarded up, and everything inside has been confiscated, and their families have been taken away into slavery. They find out that they've lost their job. They are destitute. They are poor. They no longer have food. Then they, they go through the streets, and they witness to somebody, and that person turns out to be an informant, and they grab them and take them to prison. They beat them. They abuse them. They eventually begin to crucify them and kill them and use them as, as garden party lights it's under Nero's time. To be a Christian in this time frame was to be poor, was to be sick because you were locked in prison with all kinds of crazy diseases, was to be um, so sick, prison, thirsty, or hungry. Jesus is saying, look, he's saying prophetically into the future, these are my people. This is what's going to happen to them. And the people that are reading this for the first time are going, this is me. This is my story. This is my song. I'm homeless. I'm destitute. I'm right down to my clothes. I've got nothing. I'm naked. They were confiscated. I lost everything. And it's all because they responded to the message of Jesus. It's all because they chose to follow. What is the message of Jesus? It's this, is that God loves us, that he allowed himself to be abused and humiliated and killed in order to pay for our sin, our brokenness, the things that separate us from God. He is willing to do anything God is willing to do anything to strip us of the things that separate us from him. He did all of that, and he paid for our sins. But this message was a dangerous thing to believe in the first century. And many people rejected it. And not only did they reject it, they abused the messengers. If Jesus is God and we relate to God through Jesus, then my gods are false. That's the statement that people are facing. If Jesus is God and these people are right, then I am wrong. And suddenly I lose all power, suddenly I lose privilege and authority, and it challenges him. So it's dangerous to believe those things because I'm going to turn on you. So from the context, we see that God is saying here, judgment comes to us based on how we respond to the message first. Did you buy into this message? And secondly, did you abuse those who brought the message? What does all this mean for us? Because most of us are going, well, I'm not really persecuting Christians. Last time I looked, I mean, I like really haven't been persecuting people. So what does all this mean for us? I'm going to give you three quick things, and we're going to end the service this morning. First of all is this, is that the judge is our best hope. Scripturally speaking, we really only ever have one judge. But the text here gives us three qualities of this judge. First, he's the king. He has sovereign authority as the creator of the universe, as the creator of you and me, to judge just by his nature, because he's God. He is king. He is our best judge. And more than that, he bought the right to judge us with his own life. 
He gave his own life to buy the right to say what is in our hearts, what is in our minds, who we really are, how we responded to his message, how we responded to his people. But then it says that he is the good shepherd. He's calling and caring for the flock. He's not abusing the flock. He's not judging the flock from a perspective of trying to make himself feel good or feel better or feel powerful. He is just calling it as it is. He is a good shepherd. This is a sheep. This is a, this is a goat. He's living among them. He's leading them into good places. And you can clearly tell one from the other. If you, should get, if you ever get the chance, you should hang out at Janice's house just to see how their sheep look. It's crazy. I see, when I look out there, I see dirty, muddy little animals that are pooping everywhere. But when Janice and Jan look out there, you know what they see? They see, no, they don't even see animals. They see, this is weird too, they, one of them was named Emma. She's like, oh, this one's Emma. And that one's Amelia. I'm like, are you naming your sheep after my kids? They're like, no, that one's Sally. And she's like, they, they look at these dirty, muddy little creatures that look all identical to me. And she's like, oh yeah, that one's this name. I, I was like, I was going to call Janice and ask her for a bunch of names because they've all got names and she knows every single one of them. And that's the kind of shepherd we have. It's not just like, oh, sheep, goat. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's Heidi, that's Audrey. That's, I'm giving you some names, Janice. That's, you know, that's, that's Casey, that's Luis. This is what Jesus is like, though. This is, this is John, this is Eliza. These are, this is Bruce, this is Lori, this is Doug. I love these sheep. I'm sorry, I'm not giving you one. They're girls. He's like, what about me? Michael. Yeah, Bruce, well, it could be. Brucina. We're getting off track. Let's get back to this. This is an important point. <laughs> this is an important... He sees us as a good shepherd. That's what Jesus sees. And then lastly, his, his character, this why this judge is our best hope, is because he's the son of man. He's one of us. He knows that the struggle is real when it comes to brokenness and sin. He's not surprised by it. He knows that, as we learn in EHS, our EHS course, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, that while Jesus may live in our hearts, Grandpa lives in our bones. We are so formed by our family of origin. We are formed by our cultures. We are formed by the behaviors and the, the addictions and the brokenness passed down to us. And though we may fight against it, we still struggle. And he knows, he knows that this is real. The, book of, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all show Jesus identifying himself with people just like us, with broken people, with rejected people, uh, with prostitutes, beggars, leopards, blind people, poor people, of, uh, oppressed people. Then the book of Romans takes it one step further. When Paul says this in Romans uh, 2, I believe it is, that those people, the people that Jesus hung out with, the people that he healed, the people that he forgave, the people that are just like us, they are us. We, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says. But despite our broken condition, Jesus reveals himself as the friend of sinners as the friend of sinners. That's good news for us. The one who ultimately judges the content of our lives is also our friend. He's our judge and he's our defender if we choose him to be. He is our best defense and even better, he prepaid the debt. He prepaid the judgment. He wiped the slate clean and set us free. Our judge is our best hope. Secondly, we will be held responsible for our sin, however. How exciting is that, right? That a, Nobody shouted amen in that moment, you know, because none of us wants this. It's like, 
at best, we're dealing with this on the level of reality, right? I'm going to be held responsible for my sin. At worst, we're like, I don't even know if I want to. Personal responsibility is another naughty word in our world, isn't it? It sounds like something dad says to, to the son when he, like, you know, wrecked the car or forgot to put gas in it. You need to take personal responsibility, son. Not you. Not yet. Later. We'll talk about this later. In fact, some would say um, that we really don't have personal responsibility. They'd say that, you know, the course of history, um, it's already set. The things that are going to happen are going to happen. It's fated to happen. This is called fatalism. I'll just let go of my responsibility and let, let uh, there is no responsibility. Things are going to happen as they're going to happen, and I'll just, you know, live however I'm going to live. I have no responsibility for it's going to happen. Some people live this way. But Christians push back against that because what this, what this part of the creed, what the scripture teaches us is that we believe that God is sovereign and we are operating in his will and in his plan. And we also confess that there is a responsibility for the believer. There is a responsibility to respond to God. There is a responsibility to live within his plan and in his will and in his way and to contribute something to the world. And when we choose not to respond, when we choose to turn from his ways, when we choose not to walk in his path, passively or actively, passively by ignoring it, or actively by, you know, proactively going against it, that is what the Bible calls sin. Heidi and I were talking the other day, and she mentioned this quote from Eugene Peterson from a conference we heard years ago, and I totally, I'm like, wow, that's brilliant. I don't remember it. And she, you know, what Eugene Peterson says is like, you know, we'll call all these things conditions, oh, you've got this depressive condition, you've got this condition or that condition, and we name them all these like various and really well-defined things. And Eugene Peterson says, why don't we just call it what it is? It's sin. It's turning away from God. It's the brokenness of humanity. It's the result of what has happened inside of us. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. Others will buy into the opposite extreme of fatalism, however. Fatalism says, again, I have no responsibility. The other opposite stream would say this, that the best life for me is the life that maximizes my pleasure. The more I get, the better life is. And I get the most pleasure out of life by avoiding pain at all costs. That is called hedonism. Now, we take that and apply it only to like an island someplace where people are doing things that they, you know, like everybody thinks is off the hook. And, but hedonism just says that, look, the happiest life for me is a life that's going to have the least pain possible and the most pleasure. I'm going to be happiest if I do what I want to do. The believer again pushes back at this um, because we all know that no matter what it is, right, no matter what that thing is that we want for our pleasure, there is no amount of it that is enough. There is no amount of chocolate cake that is ever really enough to satisfy my longing for chocolate cake because I'll just want some more later. There's no amount of electronics that will ever make me fully happy. And the crazy thing about it is I'll want the latest, the coolest electronic, and I'll get it. And one month later, do you know where that thing is at? It's back in a box or in a drawer someplace. It hasn't changed my life, but I had it, and I felt good about it for that time. Christians also push back against hedonism because it says that we want to avoid pain at all costs. I'll be happiest if I avoid pain. But Christians understand that sometimes the hardest, most painful things of our life, God likes to turn those things around. He likes to take them and turn them into my good. And the things in my life that have been the hardest and most painful have been the most transformative, the most freeing, the most uh, wonderful experiences of my life that I would never go through again, but I would never trade. Jesus is just that good.
change the page. So the parable of the last judgment teaches us that we will be held to account. But it also teaches us that the stakes are eternal. It's everlasting life or everlasting punishment. We are responsible before God. How did we respond to the voice of the shepherd? Are we sheep or are we goats? Lastly, because we will be judged, and this is where we really hit it home, we shouldn't judge one another. Don't judge me. I'm not going to judge you. We shouldn't judge one another. None of us look forward to being judged, at least no one who knows themselves at all. None of us are really looking forward to this moment where we have to find out whether we're a sheep or a goat. We're doing our best. We're responding to God, and we're trusting and relying in his grace. But still, our best hope is that rightful judge. And if we believe and trust in our rightful judge, if we believe in his grace over our lives, then we need to release the ability to judge to the judge. We need to let the judge be the judge. I find it interesting that for a long time now, non-believers have feared the church because they don't want to be judged. They're like, oh, the Christians are just going to judge me. That's, that's how they look at us. They just judge us because we're not doing and living the way they live. And then I find it even more interesting now as the culture has changed. Guess what? Christians, we are on the other side of the equation. We are. We are being judged by our lives, by the world around us. Just go to a party with non-Christians. Right, we did this recently. We got invited to a, a kid's birthday party, and it was, it was a completely secular crowd, like secular meaning non-religious Christian crowd. And the moment I said, so goes, what do you do for a living? I'm like, crud. Don't ask that question. I'm a pastor. What? I'm a pastor down at Pullman Foursquare Church at the Cordova Theater. Oh, that church downtown? Yeah. Cool. Three minutes later, gone. You know, they wanted to wait long enough so it didn't seem rude. I mean, I've been in, at a soccer game where, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. And literally, walk off. You know, just gone. Like, oh, jeez. We're being judged. And it doesn't feel good. So why would we turn and do that to, to somebody else? Here is what I've noticed about judgment between people. First of all, I've noticed that humans are terrible judges. We get it wrong most of the time. We, it's like, amen, right? We're terrible judges. But secondly, I notice this, that judgment keeps us separated. You got to keep them separated. Judgment, we use it to define who is in and who is out, who is like us and who is not, who is worthy of our time and who is not. We use judgment to separate one another and what happens in the midst of that is that we are kept apart and the community of God is kept apart and the kingdom of God is kept from being expanded because we are busy judging one another and not loving one another. Romans chapter 2 goes on to say this about people like this. They're like, you know, God has set this judgment aside for all of these people who are wicked, who, in fact, I love this one. He says they invent all kinds of evil. I'm like, I'm not even sure I qualify as inventing evil. That's amazing. How do they do that? And he's like, so God has judged all these people. And then he says, so who are you to judge? Because you are them. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Do you think that you can trust and rely just in the kindness of God and judge over the people? Don't you know that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance? Maybe instead of judging, we should start offering a little bit of kindness. Because kindness can draw them near to God, not just near to us. Here's a tip. Whenever you feel judgy towards somebody, this is a great time to think. It's a great time to wonder. In fact, the EHS says this, and to be moved to wonder. I wonder 
why I feel this way. I wonder why I need to feel better than that other person. I wonder why this is happening in my heart. It's not about them, it's about me. I wonder. Lastly, judging each other isn't helpful because it separates us. It actually strips people to humiliation. It makes them a stranger to you. It puts them in a prison of loneliness. Rather than make these sorts of people uh, prisoners, lonely people, naked people, instead of doing that with our judgment, Jesus is calling us to love them instead, to clothe them with our love, to make them welcome in our lives, to go out and to visit them. This morning we're going to close with silence for a minute. And um, something we've been doing each week, if you're a guest with us, we just take a minute of silence to listen to what the Lord is saying to us because I find that when I shut up, the Holy Spirit speaks. And it's sometimes what I had to say here, but sometimes it's something different. And I want to—I want you to ask yourself this question as you're sitting in silence and just listening to the Holy Spirit for what response you need to make. Who do you most identify with in this passage? The sheep? The goats? The person in prison? The person who's hungry? The person who's lonely? And why? And what do you suppose the invitation of the judge would be to you? Let's take a minute and to respond to that, just in our own hearts. You can write something down if you want.